Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton and joining me tonight is Mr. Mark Daly. And boy, do we have an urgent, urgent news story. We are going to spend the next two hours breaking down the fact that J. Cole, J. Cole, the music superstar, has signed with the Scarborough Shooting Stars of the Canadian Elite Basketball League. This is absolutely shaken the basketball world. My friend, I'm sure you love J. Cole as much as I do, but we're not going to spend two hours breaking down his signing with the Canadian professional <laughs> basketball team. How the heck are you? I'm doing really good, man. It's uh, it, it's Friday almost. It's late uh, Thursday night here on May 19th on the the West Coast in beautiful Vancouver, BC. It was a long weekend, Victoria Day. It's a, it's a Memorial Day down in the States this weekend. I know that they've got like a long weekend. They coincides uh, with our may long weekend but whatever i mean it's a long weekend i think it's payday tomorrow i think the weather's going to be nice tomorrow it's like the hat trick of kind of like right good things that could happen on, on a friday so yeah uh, yeah i'm good man oh and of course we got formula one this weekend i mean my cup runneth over Yes, that's all you have to say. <laughs> uh, th- this is called being unprepared for a Thursday night podcast after a very, very, very busy week. And honestly, I-, I think this is one of the weekends that I'm probably a little bit more excited for. You know, I was talking mm. earlier tonight with Ahmed, one of our, our really great listeners out of Toronto, and we were talking about the fact that Bahrain was so exciting and and Jeddah was really exciting. And we saw that there wasn't a ton of spread in the field. That's a term that I've learned from Marshall, field spread. But there wasn't a ton of spread in the field and there were some really nice surprises and the last three races have been unfortunately a little bit too predictable and there's been a little bit too much field spread and Ferrari and Red Bull look just a little bit too dominant but this weekend's and we'll get there is particularly exciting because we're starting to see some of those mega upgrades roll out to the team and hopefully that's going to mix up the field a little bit. Yeah, that's one of the interesting things about the Spanish Grand Prix because I mean Barcelona is typically one of those uh, races where they we we see the 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 upgrades rolled out each and every year. So it should be uh, exciting uh, to see what uh, what happens, who's made ground, who's improved, who's lost a uh, you know uh, lost a little bit to compared to everyone else. So it's it's a good benchmark, and I guess because we're what well we're not a quarter of the way through the season, but we're getting there pretty darn quick, which is amazing. But yeah, it's exciting. Plus, uh, Barcelona, it's uh, it's a race that I've been to. It's great. And it's always a little bit different. If you've had the good fortune of going to a Grand Prix in person, when you see a race at that same track, it just adds a little bit more to it because, you know, there's obviously tons of nostalgia. But when you see like the scale of the track and you see how these cars accelerate and break and the way that they go through the corners, it's really cool. Plus, Barcelona is a really cool track where we sat when we went there in 2014. I hate to say it's already that long ago. We sat basically at the uh, at the end of the pit lane, which was kind of a cool place to sit because 
at the uh, the start of the, uh, the the Grand Prix, you can actually see them coming down. It's not really a, a big hill, but there is like a slight grade going down. So we can see them accelerating away from from the start finish line past the pits down into that uh, right left combo into the Rosberg Hamilton place of infamy in 2016 and then the track kind of folds back in on itself and then where we're sitting i think you can see turns five six seven and eight and then they go around into uh i guess turn nine and ten is where they reworked last year but we'll get to that a little bit uh, later but i was gonna it, say you're cool. giving that's, cool. that's not even a tease that's a spoiler you're giving away yeah. too much we, <laughs> we need to keep the listeners around till the end of the podcast for the spanish grand prix preview i would just add on that though you make that really great point about nostalgia and when i watch a race on tv that I've been yep. to in person, I feel I feel some kind of way about it. And I've been to Yoss many times and people have so much hate and slander for that racetrack. And I get really upset because I love it because I've been there and I know it inside and out. Like, come at me, bro. Come at me, bro. And then I back down because I'm I'm a something of a timid, timid Twitter user and I don't have the uh I don't have the bravery to get into some of those Twitter battles, but I, I feel you on the nostalgia piece for sure. Yeah, totally, totally. Hey, before we get into the news, um, I was going to ask you if you've ever, I don't know if you have a subscription to Dazen or DAZN or whatever they call it. It's where we get like our English Premier League soccer in Canada. They've got all the right Champions League and all that. And MotoGP. I don't know if you ever had a chance to watch that three-part uh, documentary. I think it's called The Making of Mark Marquez. Man, is that so well done. Like, I, I know I'm getting a little bit off topic here, but it is really, really good. I mean, I've watched it a couple of times now, and every time I go back, and I, I'm not a huge MotoGP guy. I mean, I, I love it, and I'd like to be able to watch more of it. I'm just not able to find the bandwidth to kind of fit fit into it, but that is such a good series. So if if you're lucky enough to have access to, to Dazen, D-A-Z-N or D-A-Z-N, you know, depending which side of the 49th you're on, definitely worth uh, checking out. But for uh, those let, of you not, for yeah. not just to provide a little bit of context, because I think we do a really good job of informing our, our listeners about what we're talking about. And just because I'm like any excuse that I have to talk about MotoGP on this podcast, I'm going to do it. But uh, Mark Marquez burst into MotoGP in 2013. He won the title in mm-hmm. 13, 14. He came third place in 2015 after that epic battle that saw Valentino Rossi fall just short after that controversial, controversial uh battle in the second to last race and then he won the title again in 16 17 18 and 19 he is a six times six times moto gp champion and people that are really big and diehard f1 people they might not like to hear this mm-hmm. but i would argue that winning six moto gp titles like that is probably the equivalent of winning 20 formula one titles simply because <laughs> it is incredibly demanding physically i get it the races are 40 minutes they're short yeah but they're short for a reason because there's so much physical exertion required in that sport but yeah six times champion i haven't seen it and it's because i feel some kind of way about mark marquez because i saw him possibly steal away two titles from Valentino. Valentino Rossi, and I'm a big Rossi fan, but Rossi <laughs> finished second of the championship in 15, uh, and yeah. finished second of the championship in 16 to Mark Marquez. So, uh, sounds like it's a good documentary. I used to have a DAZN subscription. I don't now, but maybe I should revisit that. Maybe I should uh, slide you my my username and password, because it, it, it's cool. It's really, really good. So, Are we on the Anyways. air? Are are you are you suggesting that you would share your password with me on the air? <laughs> oh, I guess I better edit that part out afterwards because that that's probably a, a, a violating terms of service or something. Our like listeners that. <laughs> know we don't edit anything out of this show. 
<laughs> oh, then I'm screwed then. <laughs> Access denied, Mr. Daly. Anyways, before we get into the news, why don't we just, we'll, we'll kind of like, we'll, we'll go back and forth on this. Sure. Uh, first of all, we, we're just going to hit on some uh, some updates here, the different championships and the different uh, series that we've been uh, talking about. Um, but before we do that, oh no, we'll, we'll do that, but um, the, the fantasy update at the end, I sure. know uh, before we get into the update, why don't you just plug the the show that you dropped on Monday, your latest of the interview series. So why don't you do that? Then we'll get into the championship updates. Absolutely. So if you didn't have the opportunity to tune into our latest interview series episode, we've had some we've had some real bangers over the last couple of months, at least based on the feedback that we've got. Oh, totally. We yeah. we've tried Great been, stuff. we've been trying to take these episodes in different directions and interview people that have a, an interesting perspective or an interesting background or a unique yep. take on the sport. And we had the opportunity to sit down with Amber Balkin a couple of weeks ago. Um, Amber is a US-based Canadian NASCAR driver. And it was a fascinating conversation for me because one, admittedly, I don't know a lot about stock car racing and NASCAR. So I went into that interview open-eyed and open-eared because I wanted to learn from her. And there were some really cool revelations and she was very candid mm-hmm. and very open about the reality of, of stock car racing. And I'll share one piece that I thought was fascinating, which is we talk about how terrible Formula One has been in the past because you have this concept of a pay driver, somebody that brings a lot of sponsorship money with them. And I'd always kind of assumed that was unique to Formula One, but you know, in the world of NASCAR, as we learn in that podcast, there's a lot of young drivers who bring a ton of family money and they fund their ride where she spends, admittedly, she said in the podcast, 98% of her time, it's not spent training, it's not spent driving, it's not spent practicing, it's not in a sim, it's not with her team. 98% of her time is working on getting new sponsors and nurturing relationships with her existing sponsors and doing appearances and promotional work for her sponsors. And I get that it's a big part of formula one but i think in nascar it's at a whole whole different level yeah you know i i've really enjoyed the different interviews that you've done over the past Thanks, uh, several months but this one i, I don't know, resonated with me in a different way i really enjoyed this one more than the others and and i've i think you've had some really really good conversation with a very diverse group of people which has been fantastic but amber's pretty badass and i i can't really put down to which part it was that really I, I kind of like resonated with me the most, but I, I just found it all in all, she's just um, you know an impressive person who's obviously come from a very humble background to to get where she is today, and you know I, I just uh, can't help but to admire what she's done and where she's going, not only just in her career but just in life in general. It's just uh, it's a great listen, so certainly go check that out. Okay, so uh, the 2022 Formula One uh, World Championship uh, in, on the driver's side that is uh, the top five: Charles Leclerc, Max. Verstappen, Sergio Perez, George Russell, and Carlos Sainz. And was the last time we can say that Lewis Hamilton wasn't in the top five of the the World Championship? That seems kind of crazy, but uh, maybe this is the weekend that uh, he puts it back in. He's only six points behind. Uh, oh no, he's uh, no, sorry, he's got a big step. He's actually quite a ways off. Uh, you know, Carlos is only six points off of George, but. Uh, Lewis is nearly 20 points behind uh, Carlos in six in the uh, the World Championship. On the constructors' side, we have in the top five Ferrari, Red Bull, Mercedes, McLaren, and Alfa Romeo. Only six points separating Ferrari from Red Bull. And then Mercedes uh, about uh, 55 points behind in 
third. Now, why don't we go over to the W Series? It, you had a nice uh, interview with a W Series driver. You can plug that as well. So why don't we, <laughs> you, you can segue. do that as well? <laughs> segue. So why don't you do that? And you could do the uh, the W Series. And update. I promise this wasn't all scripted like this. But we now nah, that's did me because I'm great... shameless and <laughs> it's okay to be shameless. And sometimes people get a little bit upset with us with our clickbaity podcast titles. It's how the industry works. And if we touch on that subject, I'm cool with the subjects or titles. I think you do a great job. But yeah, a couple of weeks ago, we met, we interviewed Megan Gilks. Megan Gilks is a young Canadian driver. She raced in W Series in 2019. She's still the youngest race winner in that championship's history. She's currently an engineering student and she starts work with Aston Martin Formula One team this fall, which is very, very cool. And I promise we'll resume that conversation with her later this fall because we'll probably have all kinds of new incremental insights and things like that. But looking at the W Series year to date, I get it. Season's still very young. The top two so far, probably no surprise to anyone. First place so far with 159 points is Jamie Chadwick. She is the two times championship she won or champion she won in 2019 and 2021. Last year, she finished just a hair ahead of Alice Powell, who happens to be second place in the championship right now as well with 132 points. So the two Brits battling it out for top place in the W Series. And in third place, Emma Kimmelainen, I think is how I pronounce that. I've heard it on the broadcast a hundred times. I still can't get it right. So Emma, I apologize. Currently in third place with 108 points. There you go. Very good. Okay. Well, why don't we go on now to uh, Formula E quickly? Why don't we uh, take a look? So in first is a former Formula One uh, driver, Stoffel Van Doren, who, of course, uh, raced uh, for Mercedes. He's on top with 111 points, followed by Eduardo uh, uh, Mortara, uh, Jean-Eric Verne in third place, also a former F1 driver. Uh, then you have Mitch Evans and Robin Freins uh, rounding out uh, the top five. And then on the constructors side, we have, let me switch tabs here. And of course, it freezes right at the wrong, <laughs> wrong time. Uh, in first is the Mercedes EQ Formula E team, Rocket Venturi Racing in second, DS. Tachita, I, mean, I hope I've said that right, and then Jaguar TCS Racing, and then Tag Heuer Porsche Formula E team rounding out the top five. So before we get into the news that we wanted to cover specifically, so why don't you just give a, a quick update in our own fantasy league? Because I think we've been a little bit derelict in duty and not bringing those updates to the uh, listeners, to the community. So apologies, we have not done an update since Miami, but the top 10 hasn't changed that much. Currently sitting in first place, Canadian Jesse H, 1,194 points. In second place is Tom K, his team Lando Norfish, 1,193 points. So I realize now just a point, just a point separates the top two finishers. Uh, In third place, Gabriel H, aka Crazy Bomb, 1,154 points. Number three, I guess tied for three, Press to three, Bradley P from Canada, 1,154 points. Number five, Marshall W from the UK with 1,149 points. Number six, Britain H from the US, 1,144 points. Number seven, Jesse, you have two teams. You're doing very well with both, 1,143 mm-hmm. points. Number seven, Sean B from Salt Lake City, 1,143 points. Number nine, Grayson S, Mickle and Dime, 1,142 points. And in 10, a new individual has cracked the top 10. I don't know if this is Jana, Yana, Jana, Jana S. 
with 1,139 points. Welcome to the top 10. And for everybody that keeps asking me where I am, I am currently sitting 243rd, 246th out of 2,020 teams. So my uh, my championship go. is drifting away, but I do not give up hope. I'm bringing a host of upgrades, fantasy upgrades to to Spain. <laughs> there, there, that that'll be interesting. I, I, I'm looking forward to see how that works. But speaking of upgrades, the first thing I had in the news feed here was the 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 green Red Bull. It doesn't doesn't roll off the tongue quite <laughs> as easy as the, the the pink Mercedes. But maybe we'll shelve that to until we get to our upgrades discussion a little bit later in the show when we talk about the race specifically. So why why don't we hit on a couple of quick uh, news stories for the next five minutes or so before we get to the first uh, break? And the first one is that Johannesburg is more likely. Uh, to finalizing deal with Formula One for an African Grand Prix. So that would be the first time that we've uh, been to Africa, especially South Africa, since, what, 1992? It's been far, far too long. And this one's been kind of smoldering for a little bit. I think smoldering is the, the, the right word for it because it kind of popped up and it hasn't gone away, but it hasn't really caught on fire yet. But I, I think this is the first... I think this is the first time that there's a little bit more life behind this story than maybe idle speculation. Because I know in previous uh, times in the news when it popped up was just things like different drivers like Lewis saying, oh, it would be great. We should be going to places like South Africa, go back to Kaliami uh, or wherever it might be. And um, this is the first time this is actually a thing. Yeah, and this really stems from a New York Times piece from a couple of weeks ago written by Ian Parks, and he talks a little bit about the growth of the sport and talks about a couple of upcoming events, including obviously Las Vegas. But in it, he has a quote from Greg Maffey, the chief executive of Liberty, who says in a quote, Johannesburg is definitely on our list. You'd love to have one in Cape Town, but I'm not sure that's doable. So Johannesburg is more likely. And of course, that is where their existing world-class track is. And a couple of weeks ago, you and I talked about the fact that their existing Formula One track has seen significant investment in the course of the last five or 10 years. has been almost completely renewed. Looks like a great track. Looks like a great circuit. Tons of elevation. Looks very racy. And that they could probably host F1 with a pretty minimal investment. So we would probably be talking about media accommodations at the track and the garages. But aside from that, it's pretty much plug and play as far as being Formula One ready. And I think it would be a great place to to go for all of the reasons. And obviously, Lewis is a huge fan of this, says Lewis Hamilton in the same New York Times article. I want to hear it announced next. Ultimately, my ancestors are from there. So that's why it's important for me personally. It's important mm-hmm. for the sport to go there if they're in every other continent why not? And Hamilton may not have to wait as long as he may think he does because Domenicali, Stefano Domenicali says, we have two options for a new race and the most likely to hopefully happen soon is South Africa. It's part of our agenda cool. and there's a commitment to see if this could be on the calendar as soon as possible. Wow. So you guys have a connection to South Ar- Africa? Get out of here. No way. Really? No, it's a serious question because uh, my dad actually grew up in East London, and that's, uh, I guess, a bit of a daily family trivia that I never really expected to divulge on the show. So, if uh, you know, you guys have a you know family connection to uh, to, to South Africa, that'd be kind of cool as well. So, who me? No, it, it sounded like you you said, uh, but maybe I was just uh, not paying attention. But maybe that was the other Hamilton you're, you're referring to, Lewis. It was the other. Oh. So. It, and all so no, I don't. Unfortunately, it would be really great to have some sort of connection to yep. 
to the continent. Um, but no, I think you and I sometimes get confused because I own a Lou. I own. I have a Lewis Hamilton as a child. And sometimes when I'm talking about Lewis, it comes across as I'm talking about Lewis. And I've shared some of my recent experiences like, hey, Lewis had his first basketball practice the other day. And you're, and you're like, I'm pretty sure Lewis Hamilton has played basketball before. Like, no, no, like, my four-year-old, my four-year-old. I know sometimes, yeah, that, that, that that's on me. But uh, no, that, it's kind of cool because uh, I thought for a second there that uh, you actually had family that was uh, from, from from South Africa. But uh, that's one of the places I'd I would love add to go one other piece about mm. the South South Africa race as well. So the last time they raced there, they they raced there obviously until the mid 80s. They returned briefly in 92, 93. I think that this is one of those races where it would it would really benefit Formula One if they found a way to integrate the community in the sport. Like we get it. We talked a lot about the fact that going to Miami was never about engaging the local population and making the motorsports fans and making the the product and the sport accessible to new new demographics and new generations of fan. Like if you're going to South Africa, I hope you don't do it for the the publicity and to have a sexy star-studded television broadcast that if you're going to if you're going to South Africa, I hope you find a way to engage the community and you bring F1 into schools and you promote engineering as a pathway and I just I hope they do it for the community and I hope they do it for the right reasons if they go. Well, I, I was going to go into a break, but let's let's just do this uh, right now because uh, this was actually on the slate a little bit later on. But Lewis uh, Hamilton, you know, the big Lewis, not little Lewis, just so we're not getting. Uh, you know, <laughs> everybody that. knows they're they're probably wondering you know what the hell we're talking about, but this is just us you know confusing ourselves. But Lewis Hamilton. Seven-time world champion says he wants to see uh, more F1 city race uh, street circuits, so uh, diversity amongst uh, fans is increased. And you know, for very much the the, the purpose of, or for the reason that you were just uh, talking about. And uh, Lewis had to say, "quote Of course, I love the history, particularly in certain circuits. But the older I get, the more I realize it's about the people." We could go to the middle of nowhere that has very few people, not great accommodation, not great community. And for us as individuals, driving on a track that's historic is cool, but it's about the people. And the people really do make it. We've experienced with the pandemic, no one being able or no one being in there, and that's just no atmosphere. It was just like a test day. It was not enjoyable. End quote. So yeah, I mean, that's true. And I mean, I, I mean, both you and I have been very fortunate that we've been able to attend a number of Grand Prix in in, in our lifetime, but for for us especially, it's a flyaway event. You know, we we can't go downtown Vancouver to watch a race. We can't drive a couple hours down the the I five to go and watch one in Seattle or something like that. So we have to go to somewhere, and a lot of people don't have that option. So it would be kind of cool to see them go to some different places and and maybe expose the sports to a whole new different group of uh, people, especially the local communities. And and of course, it's like anything else. Is it's the people that make. The, the sport, the fans that make it exciting. I mean, what's one of the things that we always talk about Monza is the atmosphere. Who provides the atmosphere? The fans, right? And so, yeah, go on. You were going to say something? And, and no, I was just going to say there's a big difference So in Canada, and I'm sure it's like this at Madison Square Garden. I'm sure it's like this at Staples Center. I think if you look at the lower bowl of these arenas during a Laker game or a Rangers game or a Maple Leaf game, there's zero atmosphere in the lower bowl because it's typically your white-collar fans I don't even want to call them fans. They're they're kind of the white collar corporate audience that are going to the the game mm-hmm. because they're being wined and dined by a, a vendor partner or by a potential business partner. And the real fans, the the blue collar fans, are up in the upper bowls. And I think the Miami was. 
Yeah, they're, they're up in the nosebleeds, and I, I think Miami was great, and I think it was a great show, and I think it's great for the sport, but it did nothing to grow motorsports within mm-hmm. kind of the community in Southern Florida. At least, maybe maybe I'm wrong, hopefully I'm wrong, but it was designed more to cater to that upper echelon clientele that Bernie would historically have gone after. Yeah. And I think my point is that if you're going to South Africa, make that event about the community, make it about the people that live in that city, make it about people that live in that country, embrace the community and make them part of the event and the festivities. Hundred percent. Nothing n- nothing further I can say to that. I mean it, it would be great to just engage the people there. Make them feel like they're they're a part of it. And uh, you'll 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 win fans for life. I think it seems like a pretty simple formula. Anyways, time for a very quick break. We'll be back in just a moment, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. Okay, well, welcome back to the show and talking about the races that are on the calendar, maybe off the calendar, or we're talking more about races that are on the calendar or coming onto the calendar. The next one is definitely off the calendar, and that is the Russian Grand Prix that has been on the the, the World Championship uh, calendar for, what, about five or six years now? That was uh, canceled uh, about three months ago, just uh, after the, the whole Good. invasion, Good. Russian invasion of Ukraine and everything. That and happened let's with that. never go back. So it's... It's been canceled, obviously, and it won't be replaced uh, this year. So instead of having 23 races, we're only going to have 22. So we're going to have a bit of a gap in the calendar there. But you know, I, I'm not honestly too disappointed that we're, we're not going to fill that one in. I feel that uh, even though I was really pumped for a 23 race season this year, I think that even with only, and I'm doing the inverted commas here, 22 races here, I think that we have uh, more than enough to keep us entertained between now and what the second week of December. I mean, there's there's a lot of racing to come yet, uh, friends. 
It does mean there's a big gap in the calendar in September. So we are off, obviously, for almost all of August. Yeah. We come back for... So we race 31st of July in Hungary. Then we race again the 28th of August at Spa. Of course, Spa, I always get excited for. Yeah. It's been reprofiled. They've done some work this year. Of course, last year was a washout, literally and figuratively a washout. Then we race again the 4th of September at Zamvort. 11th of September, we're at Monza, and then we don't race again because of the absence of the Russian event until the 2nd of October. So we almost have like a second summer mm. break in September this year, which is kind of unique. That said, I'm glad we're not racing in, in Russia. Never want to go back to Russia for countless reasons. But I think the one thing that is important from a, an economics perspective is this is going to leave a bit of a hole in the Formula One purse because no one's going to step up and host a race, which means they're not going to get that $25, $50 million check. Mm. And because there's no event to broadcast on TV, they're not going to get that money from Sky and all of their other broadcast partners. Sure, now, sure. I'm sure Formula One isn't going to go and graciously refund one twenty-third of my F1 TV Pro <laughs> app subscription. Probably it would be not. nice if they did. But uh, I think from a TV network perspective, they're not going to cut a check for an event that's not being held. So yeah, adds a, a unique twist to the season where we've got a summer break and then we've got a, a kind of a second mini summer break this year. So also just to keep your eyes and ears peeled for the change.org petition coming from uh, via Mark Hamilton to get a 123rd rebate on your F1 TV Pro subscription. But uh, but, but seriously, I, I'm not upset about dropping a race I'll be honest, you and I have talked offline about this. To me, 23 races is an awful big commitment. I get it. I've only got to show up every two weeks, but it's asking a lot of fans that may have historically only been conditioned to 17, 18 races. I don't know about you, but I'm not disappointed that we're not going to have 23 races. Well, you know, it's interesting too, because like you said, I mean, we basically have the entire month of August off for the summer break, which has been in place for a number of years now. So we, we get a nice break there, which coincides nicely and the way that my wife and I purposely planned our family vacation <laughs> this summer around the, the the summer break. But then we're going to have a lot of racing between now. I mean, we're only just past the middle of May. So we've got the, the, the second half of May. We've got all of June, all of July. So we've got a heck of a lot of racing coming up in the next 10 weeks or so. Then we get a nice four-week break. And then we get a couple of races after Labor Day. And then we get a nice mini break again. And then it's going to set up a very busy run to the uh, to the to the end of the season in December. So October, November and those first couple of weeks in December. So dropping a race in September, I'm perfectly OK with it, especially in the the, the context in which, uh, you know, that 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 change had to be made. And I, I mean, you kind of go back to even a couple of years ago in the pandemic, the, the COVID year of 2020, I mean, they still managed to get 17 races off. I know, I know we had double races at, at, at the Red Bull Ring and Silverstone, and they did a wonderful job to, to get, get a season up. Cause at one point they were talking, well, you know, the, the way that this, the, the regs are set up is we only need, what was it? A minimum of eight races to classify it as a world championship. But I mean, we, we, we went from eight to, to seven. 17, which was how many were we going to have that year? I think it was 21 or 22, maybe. So, I mean, it wasn't too short of the mark. So, they, I mean, they did a phenomenal job. But uh, yeah, to 
only have 22. I think I'm fine with that. Do you, do you remember that a lot of the conversation, because of course we go to Australia and then the season's basically paused for four months and there was all this discussion about, well, there's going to be an asterisk next to 2020 because it's a compressed ski season. There's only 17 races. I've never once reflected back on 2020 and thought of it as anything other than an utmost championship. I've never thought about oh, it as being asterisks. It's 100% a legit season. I don't think that you need to have to asterisk it or explain it in any way. I mean, sure, you had the 70th anniversary Grand Prix that they had at Silverstone, and then you had what the you had the um, Styrian Grand Prix, and then the Austrian Grand Prix. I mean, fine. I mean, I love Silverstone. I love the Red Bull Ring, but you know, after two races back to back, you know, in successive weekends, I kind of have my fill of both of those circuits. But I mean, from from no way did that detract from the legitimacy of that championship. Not one iota. I mean, that was. It was what it was. I mean, it was it it was a championship. I mean, sure, Lewis and Mercedes crushed anyone else, but how was that different than, <laughs> than any other year prior to twenty twenty? None at all. I mean, other than we had that four month uh, shutdown. I mean, we we started it basically the beginning of July rather than the middle of uh, March, because if you you know, I, I don't really want people to necessarily go back and think about the middle of March 2020 in case it's a bit of a trigger event. But I mean, COVID basically kicked off at uh, right and around the Australian Grand Prix and then everything that the factory shut down, everything shut down. We all shut down. We were all sitting at home and it took four or four months to get back on the track. And then once they did, I mean, it was it, it the, the season just went and it was kind of flying by the seat of our pants. But yeah, I, I, I don't don't see any way to take anything away from that season or anyone that won a race or anyone that won the Mercedes or Lewis for, for winning the championships hundred percent deserved in my opinion. Totally. It's remarkable to think in hindsight about what the atmosphere was like, right? Like, you know, we get into 2021, we're a year into the pandemic, we understand the virus better, and 90% of the population by April of 2021 has been vaccinated. So even if you get COVID, you're probably not going to get as sick, you may not even feel the symptoms. Mm -hmm. But in 2020, when that was race was when that championship was ongoing, nobody had had a vaccine. And all of the drivers and all of the mechanics and all of the team members effectively lived in in paranoia because no, they totally. didn't want to get COVID because you go into isolation for 10 or 14 days. And if you get COVID and you bring it into the garage, what if the mechanics get it? What if you forfeit a race? What if your chief driver gets sick and misses two weeks? Mm -hmm. And we did see a little bit of that. Obviously, Lewis got COVID at one point. Checo got COVID. Lance got, got COVID. But I don't believe any of that compromised the integrity of the championship. No. But it was probably a very, very, very lonely existence for the teams because you've got to think the drivers were probably living in a bubble, a protective bubble away from everybody to keep them healthy. The mechanics were probably living in a self-contained bubble and we're seeing nobody, we're speaking to nobody but each other for the course of that championship. Like I think there'll be some really interesting things written in the years to come mm -hmm. about the uniqueness that was that championship. Now everyone's had three vaccines. We get it. We get sick. Maybe you get sick. You don't. You isolate for a couple of days and you're back on the road but back then it was very different it was a very scary time so kudos to everyone for being able to put together a 17 race championship and help us focus on something other than the pandemic Yeah, exactly i was gonna say i think the one exception to that was charles leclerc because didn't he go back to monaco between those two races in austria and didn't weren't right. there some pictures snapped of him so he kind of had to put up with a, a little bit of a flack for you know, breaching the, yeah. the, the the bubble or whatever it was okay uh next story i'll let you speak to this one because this is about the the, the business of Formula 
Formula One. And I know that you're all over anything of the, that's the business of sports. So uh, McLaren CEO Zach Brown has been very critical of the his his rivals in the Formula One paddock in what he sees as a very selfish view. That's the, the direct quote about uh, potentially adding a new team or two or whatever it is to the to the Formula One grid. So your thoughts on that, Mr. H? Yeah, this is a topic that continues to give. And it's so to back this up a little bit, for the first time in probably five or six years, there's intense interest from an outside party to start a new Formula One team. And of the last few teams that we've seen enter the sport, most of them have failed. You know, Toyota, if we go back 15, 16, 17 years, they came and left. BMW entered the sport with Sauber. That was a failed partnership. They left. Honda came as a as a constructor. That failed. They left, although, of course, they came back as an engine supplier. We saw Marussia. We saw Manor. A lot of these teams entered the sport. Now, the economics of the sport were incredibly different. It was very, very difficult for any new team to achieve any degree of success. But yep. now that the Concord Agreement has stabilized the economics of the sport, we're starting to see interest from other parties. Now, I think what we know in terms of the Volkswagen group is that they want to enter, obviously, through Porsche and through Audi. They have zero desire, at least reportedly, they have zero desire from either of their brands to start a new team from the ground up. It's wholly, wholly expensive. We're talking about hiring a thousand people and building a factory while simultaneously developing a car from scratch. That is a huge work effort. Now, as we documented and we covered last year, the Andretti Group tried to buy Sauber last year for a number of different reasons. That agreement didn't work out. They've come back and decided that, hey, if we can't buy a team and our economics won't allow us to buy a bigger team, we just want to start a team. And they've been a little bit forceful in their efforts to do so. And I think that's probably soured eight of the 10 teams on the grid. And the two teams that are excited by the prospect of Andretti entering are McLaren, with Zach Brown, who has a really great relationship with Andretti and obviously wants to nurture that relationship because potentially he wants to get Colton Herta into a McLaren uh, for practice or for free free practice or for a test at some point. And then, of course, Renault is incredibly excited because they see this as an opportunity to have a technical relationship with a team in the same way that Ferrari has a technical relationship with Alfa Romeo Sauber and with Haas because currently Alpine is the sole team that manufactures its own engine that doesn't have a partner. So you have these two teams that are excited about a new entry on the grid. And then you have these other groups, including Christian Horner and Red Bull and Total Wolf and Mercedes that are wholly apprehensive. One, because they don't believe in the plan that Andretti has brought. So they're saying, if you want to enter Formula One, it's it's one thing for you to pay the $200 million dilution fee, which is to offset our losses potentially in the prize money that's awarded, because now we've got to split it 11 ways instead of 10 ways. Yep. But show us the plan that you have that proves that you can be economically viable. Total is like, we spent spent billions of dollars on our operation. Christian Horner, we spent billions of dollars on our operation. What is your plan that's going to enable you to be not only 
competitive, but put the sport in a position where it can develop and generate incremental wealth. So I think they're very, very skeptical of Andretti. I don't think they're opposed necessarily to their being an 11 team. They just want to see a very firm business plan from Andretti saying, this is specifically what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to finance it. Because I think when Andretti went into the paddock in Miami, he went in there with that piece of paper looking for signatures, and he got a signature from Renault, and he got a signature from McLaren. But really, all we know of his plan at this point is that he's going to hopefully have an American driver, he's going to split the operation between the UK and a base in the US, and he's going to have a technical partnership with Renault, which I obviously just mentioned. But I think beyond that, people are very skeptical. At least people within the sport are skeptical. So they're skeptical of his plan. And at the same time, they're very apprehensive about allowing 11th team because that means they have to split their their income with an additional team. And as we discussed last week, Christian Horner has a plan for that. He says, hey, Mr. Formula One, if you want to add an 11th team, you can pay for their prize money out of your own pot of income. So I, I'm I'm a little concerned. I, I have no objection to there being an 11th team. I just don't like the forceful manner with which the Andretti group is trying to push this through. Mm. If it was such a slam dunk bid, then I think the other teams would probably buy in because they would see. And I don't know that there's evidence yet that suggests that the team would generate incremental revenue, which would offset the prize money that the other teams would lose by having an 11th team on the grid. And we can look at Haas. It's an American team has done nothing for the sport. If anything, it's been a net negative for the sport in terms of negative PR, negative publicity, and the fact that they siphon off prize money by being a top 10 finisher because there are only 10 teams, while not providing any incremental value from an external marketing perspective. So again, I'm open to 11 teams. I'm not totally sold on this because I look at the way that Toto and Christian are reflecting on it. And if they're not sold on it, I'm a little bit apprehensive myself. Yeah, it, it is very, very interesting uh, like when, when you put it that way. I mean, just your comments about uh, Haas. I mean, yeah, they, they haven't really done anything for, for Formula One, but I would argue that Haas hasn't even really done anything beneficial for Haas themselves. I mean, for all the reasons so that, that, that you just laid out. I mean, there's been more negative attention on them over the last uh, several years or since they came. When did they enter Formula One? Was it 2016, 2015? 2015 yeah, yeah. i mean they, they, they've been around a while now i mean they're, they're they're not the new kids on the block by by any stretch of the uh, the imagination and i'll refrain from making a new kids on the block uh, pun or comparison here so i'll, I'll move ahead graciously but yeah it, it's just interesting because uh i i kind of thought that with that that bid that they made for sauber alfa romeo or i guess just the sauber group or whatever the that the parent corporation is or a team name is um and, and what's the what's the name of the company that took over them because i guess peter sauber's not in charge anymore it's got some funny funny name now it's right on the tip of my tongue it'll probably come back to me so i mean if it was a slam dunk then that that sale would have gone through right but now with the way that what what i heard after miami it's just like it kind of seems to me that they're, they're trying to find a way in and it's it almost has at least from the outside, a, a bit of the the feeling that is kind of being made up on the as they go along. It's like we we tried this way, that didn't work. Okay, well l- let's try this way instead. And okay, that didn't quite work. Let's try something else instead. So to me, it's like they keep flipping around and trying to, 
you know, they're they're playing with the Formula One entry Rubik's Cube and, you know, they're they're just still coming up with like a mix of colors rather than a solid face, which would be step one, right? And then the computed clue cube would be a you know successful entry and an Andretti car on the grid in 2025 or whatever it might be, right? And don't get us wrong. We would both love to see a truly successful American team on the grid. Totally. But what we don't want to see, because you and I have been watching the sport for 30 or 40 years, we have seen team after team enter the sport with a ton of promotional marketing and noise and fireworks and crash and burn because they simply underestimated the economic resources required to start up a new team. And I think that their real shot was Sauber. And I think ultimately the Andretti group just didn't have the capital to buy that as a as a complete entity, rebrand it and start going with all of their existing infrastructure that cost cap aside, it still costs a ton of money to start a Formula One team. And I think these these other teams are looking at this like, hey, look, we're open to the idea of 11th team if we mm-hmm. can figure out the prize money piece, but we've got 10 relatively stable teams right now for the first time. Because when has there ever been a period in F1 where all of the teams are financially stable? There's always one or two teams that are on the brink. Yeah. We saw it with Marouche and we saw it with Manor and Perfect. we saw it with yep. Toyota. Like we saw all these teams and finally there's 10 teams that are on f- solid financial footing and I think there's a risk. And then the other big piece too, I think, is the two hundred million dollar dilution fee that was embedded into the most recent Concord agreement. I think if the teams could go back and renegotiate that, they would. That is probably seen as a huge mistake because if all it costs for a team to enter the sport, aside from building the factory and building the infrastructure, but of all the if if all they require in terms of a financial outlay to get into the sport is $200 million, it significantly undermines the value that the teams want to project in terms of their own personal valuations that we want to get to a point, and Lawrence Stroll talked about this endlessly, where these teams are worth a billion or multiple billion dollars, like an NBA team or an NFL team or an NHL team, for crying out loud. They want to have those valuations, and it's very hard for Mercedes or Red Bull or any of these existing teams to say, hey, we've got an 800 or 900 or billion dollar valuation mm-hmm. when somebody can cut a check for $200 million and enter the sport. So I think the valuation is a big part of that as well. But again, they agreed to a $200 million dilution fee in the most recent Concord agreement. They're going to have to live with that. You know, it's funny, just as you were talking, I had to look up the 2002 uh, Spanish Grand Prix here just to see how many teams are still in Formula One that were at the at Barcelona 20 years ago and how many have uh, dropped off because, you know, sometimes the, the teams, they, they disappeared like Marussia and, and Manor, they've just gone. Or then you have like a Lotus, which was taken over now is uh, Alpine, right? So a lot of these teams have gone on under different names. So you had uh, Ferrari, Williams, BMW, McLaren, Mercedes. You had Renault when they still had their own uh, works team. Uh, Sauber Patronus, Arrows Cosworth, Jordan Honda, Bar Honda, Jaguar Cosworth, and then Toyota. You had Mikasalo and Alan McNish driving to, for Toyota. And then you had uh, Minardi Asia Tech. So, I mean, you can kind of go through like the progression because some of these teams, you know, when the owners sell up, you know, they get taken over and then they get uh, rebranded and they, they, they go on in, in, in a new guy. Cycling's kind of the same way. I mean, if you go back uh, several years, you had Sky who were crushing everyone. Now they're Ineos Grenadiers and they're 
sort of kind of crushing everyone from time to time. But, you know, it, it's... That's it's, a really yeah. great point that you just made inadvertently then. If you look at the teams Never that are inadvertently. really successful it was always in Formula a brilliant 1, comment, but... So, it was a plan. <laughs> it, was, it was all scripted. We talk about this for hours in the pre-show. <laughs> that's right. But you, you just made a point, maybe inadvertently, that if you look at the really successful teams in Formula 1, they were taken over, right? Like you look at Mercedes, they were Braun, which was Honda. So when Mercedes stepped in, they already had existing infrastructure. Red Bull took over Jaguar. They had all of the Ford infrastructure that they were able to, to consume and start with. They had somewhere to start. It's much more difficult when you're starting from scratch. And not that I ever want to make excuses for Haas, but they entered as an expansion team for all intents and purposes. They had to start from scratch. And again, they had that very intricate technical relationship with Ferrari that gave them a little bit of a boost. But starting from nothing is is very, very difficult as opposed to starting with an existing factory and 400 factory workers and yep. engineers and an, an aerodynamicist. Like it's, it's very, very different. So again, I would love an American team. I want an American team. Not totally convinced Andretti's the right guy, and maybe he is, but I would love to see the business plan that would demonstrate that, hey, we have a billion dollars of capital ready to go to make sure that we can float for five years until we get to a point where we're competitive. Because I don't want to see another Jaguar where they come and they exit the sport. I don't want to see another Toyota when they come and they exit the Mm -hmm. sport. And I think that's something that the sport needs to demand of Volkswagen as well, that if you're going to come in, Porsche and... And Audi, if we've bent over backwards to accommodate you in the engine regulations, the power unit regulations, we need a long-term commitment from you as well. So if there's a new team, an expansion team coming, I want to see their business plan. Like I want to see that you're committed and you have the capital to float this through five years of possibly really poor results until you become competitive. Yeah, we we don't want to see them bail after two or three years or something like that, saying it's the worst thing that we ever did and it's ruined our company forever or whatever the, 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 the case may be. Okay, a uh, good place to park it here. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back on the flip side to talk about stuff. So don't go away. After that, after that <laughs> riveting, riveting hint, I mean, I know everybody's just going to be glued to the edge of their seat. But anyways, we'll be back in just a moment, and uh, we'll catch you on the flip side. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Well, welcome back. So the next one we want to talk about here is, uh, this is an interesting one, is time running out on Mick Schumacher's Formula One career. Now, this could be a little bit of a hot potato, uh, a bit of an interesting uh, discussion. So this, this one I find, for me, seems like a little bit of a premature discussion. I mean, last year was kind of a a difficult season for for Mick because obviously the car wasn't great. He didn't really have a like a, a really good teammate to to push him to, you know, to be a better driver. Now you um Kevin Magnuson has come back and I think he's uh, really established a good benchmark for for Mick to really measure himself and prove against. I mean, he's been successful at other uh, levels of uh, motorsport what uh, he's uh, you know, what he's done where he's uh, raced and champion 
championships and races that he's won. He's only 23 years old. I'm just going to pull up here his, uh, let's see, his list of accolades. And what he's done, I mean, he's raced in karting, he's won, uh, raced in Formula 4, he's raced in Formula 3, he's raced in Formula 2, and of course, uh, he's been... You know he's been in Formula One. This so he, I mean he's been in here for for a year and a half. But that's uh, definitely, you know, he's got the name right. And I, I think that with the name comes a lot of increased uh, pressure, a lot of increased uh, expectations, especially when you have a name like Schumacher. I mean his dad's seven time world champion. He's one of the greats of, uh, of of Formula One. I mean he's one of those drivers you either loved him or hated him compared to, to, to Lewis Hamilton, where a lot of people, I mean, he, he's a lot more personable, I think, than, than, than Michael, who was at times very, very intense and really could get under people's skin and especially under fans' uh, skin for some of the things that uh, that he got involved with. Though. I mean, there was no denying his talent as a driver. I mean, he was he, he was something else. And I think that maybe colors expectations of, uh, of Mick Schumacher. I mean, it's not like he's racing for Ferrari. He's not racing for Mercedes. He's racing for Haas, and well, that's that's a bit of a situation. Let's put it that way. What are your thoughts? Do you think this is a bit of an early, premature discussion, or do you think it's timely? I mean, there, there's other guys in that age group that uh, have maybe done a little bit more. I mean, you could uh, make the argument, okay, well, look, look at George Russell. He was racing for Williams for a couple of years. And that wasn't a great car, but still, you know, he had that that nickname. And I don't think it's pejorative in any way to call him Mr. Saturday because he did some wonderful things in that Williams, especially last year, to, to get it out of Q1 into Q2 and kind of outperformed uh, the, the car from time to time, even if the the, the race results necess- weren't necessarily there. And you maybe look at some of the other guys, but I guess that, you know, he's just maybe just a little bit younger, not by much, than say your Lando's and George's and, and guys like that. But you know, your thoughts, Mark? There was a point where I was absolutely convinced that he was going to be a future Ferrari driver. And we would often talk about that when we were speaking about the Carlos Sainz contract that, hey, how much how much stability does he have? And do Ferrari want to commit to long-term deals for Leclerc and Sainz when you have Mick Schumacher waiting in the wings? But all of a sudden, I think the narrative has justifiably changed. I argued last year that 2021 was an absolute write-off for Mick, that he was ri- driving an absolute dog of a car. The entire team was a PR disaster, and his teammate was not a bar to be measured against. You know, Mick won an F3 championship, yep. and he won an F2 championship, but both were in his second season. He had to take. He took two years to win both of those titles. He entered a Formula One a little bit older than some of his some of his peers. I, I give him 2021 as kind of a, a write-off, and I don't hold that against him because I think he entered into Formula One in an incredibly negative situation that probably only got worse when you got towards the beginning of this season. But I think maybe the question now starts to be, hey, was that car last year better than we thought it was? And it was simply being piloted by two underdeveloped, less skilled drivers. Because let's look at let's look at Mick's performance this year. He's not been in the points once. He's never been in the points in his career. He finished 11th in Bahrain, arguably his best performance of his career, and it wasn't a great drive. He finished 13th in Australia, 17th in Imola, 15th in Miami. But his teammate, his teammate has absolutely been crushing him in free 
pre-practice and qualifying and the race. Kevin Magnuson, who came back to Formula One, had absolutely no role in developing this car, had no seat time, had no test time. He finished fifth in Bahrain. He finished ninth in Jeddah, and he finished ninth again in Imola. He has absolutely been destroying Mick. So on the one hand, you could argue, well, Mick didn't have a lot of development time last year. It was a dog of a car. It was a bad experience for him. But how do we know that last year's car wasn't better? It was just being piloted by two young, inexperienced rookies. That car may have been capable of scoring points. We don't know. Yep. Let's be honest. If, if Nikita Mazepan was in this car this year, I don't think it would be unfair to, to suggest he would probably be performing more poorly than Mick. So you would have two drivers out of the points and we would all be criticizing the hell out of the Haas once again. But you put put Kevin Magnuson in the car and he scored three points finishes, all of a sudden that exposes Mick in a pretty significant way. And and it's funny that Nikita Mazepan, we talked about this, he he helped shield, I think, Nicholas Latifi from some criticism last year. But inadvertently, he may also have been shielding Mick Schumacher from criticism that that he was so bad himself, it took some of the heat off of Mick. Mm-hmm. But I'm a little bit concerned. And all of a sudden, I look at Ferrari and yeah, it's nice to have him. It's a really great story and it's great for Mark marketing and branding and for TV broadcast and the narrative. But if he doesn't significantly improve this year, why should Haas commit to him for another year when they could bring in another equally or another driver similar to Kevin Magnuson that can drag that car into the points? Yeah, that, that's a great point. Who knows, uh, perhaps uh, maybe it will come down to a financial thing because let, let's not forget those world championship points all have a dollar figure attached to them, right? But exactly. I mean, I, I think one thing that you didn't mention is that he has had a little bit of bad luck this year. I mean, he did have the opportunity to score some points and then things just didn't work out for him. And then, of course, he missed that race in Saudi Arabia because he had that huge shunt and destroyed the car and had right. to go to the hospital and all that. So he, he's he's shown a little bit more. I mean, he's had some flourishes this year, but I mean, now he's got to convert. He's got to take the ball over the goal line. He's got to he's got to start scoring some points on top of it. So, I would say that this this next uh, well, I mean, the, the entire season counts. But I think that if he really wants to get the season going, this next two and a half months going up to the the, the summer break, I think will do a lot to determine where he's going to go uh, w- with Hass if he's going to stick around. Because I mean, if he kind of like blows say I would even say hot and cold I mean if he stays kind of cold now up until Hungary which is typically the the last race before the summer break then who knows maybe that kind of forces Haas into a decision that okay well maybe we need to start looking elsewhere and they start putting their feelers out to whoever I mean there's there's going to be plenty of potential drivers that they could put into that car if they wanted to but if he really wants to justify his existence and staying with Haas beyond this year and then potentially a move up the grid to a better team, then certainly, I mean, he's going to have to make start making a better impression sooner rather than later because, you know, if uh, he finally gets it together later in the year, it's kind of like closing the barn door after the car- cows have run away. So that's just... Uh, the one thing that I'm going to give Mick is yeah. this. For a young driver, it's incredibly important to be paired with a strong senior driver. And the reason being that when they're sitting in the garage after a free practice session or after qualifying, it's incredibly important for that younger driver to be able to look at the data and the telemetry pouring out of the car from the more senior driver because they learn 
everything from that data. They learn breaking points. They learn their 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 lines. They learn so much. And I think now one of the benefits to to mixed development is he's got a senior driver in Kevin Magnuson that has worlds of Formula One experience. And now he can start tapping into his data. And he's probably starting to learn some things. Last year when his teammate with Nikita Mazapan and he was outperforming Mazapan, he had no data to look at. He had no benchmark whatsoever. So I think we should, we should see some accelerated development from Mick over the course of the next five to 10 races because he's now had five races to pour over Magnuson's data and telemetry. That should help his development because he should start going out and emulating those things. He had no pace setter. He had no benchmark last year. He had nobody to work with. So hopefully, hopefully we'll see a uh, improved performance over the course of the this, this championship. Yeah, certainly one of those subplots uh, for the 2022 season that's uh, worth keeping an eye on over the next uh, weeks and months ahead. So the next uh, story is maybe one we should have thrown into the discussion a little bit uh, earlier, but I guess we were kind of running out of time. But this one's kind of an interesting one. So uh, Greg Maffey, the uh, Liberty Media boss, has um, said that uh, they've been contacted that uh, by New York City Mayor Eric Adams that they've offered Formula One a potential site for a future Grand Prix. So this is uh, really kind of uh, interesting because, I mean, you look at the struggle that they've had to find a suitable place to put a race in in Miami. And I, I mean, they looked at a couple of different venues over the years. I mean, because this went on for quite a long time before we actually got this race going. And I mean, this was even in the courts just even as recently as what about six six weeks ago is within the last two months i mean there was uh, uh still a lawsuit from from local residents trying to 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 postpone this thing but you know to have uh you know the the city of new york come up to them and say hey guys we want to host a, a formula one race and moreover we've got the land that uh you know to to do it you know like give, give us a uh give us some consideration here is uh, is something that's a little bit uh, a little bit different, but I mean it wouldn't be unusual. I mean we've seen that with other you know races from other venues in different countries where you know they've they, they've basically gone and wooed Formula One. But uh, I think this is kind of a cool story. New York was absolutely the the unicorn for Bernie Eccleston. There was a New York City Grand Prix that was announced in the early 1980s. It was supposed to take part originally in 1983. It was going to be held, I believe. In, in New Jersey, and I think it was going to be around the Meadowlands Sports Complex, so basically in a parking lot. It didn't happen. In 2011, plans were revealed for another New York City Formula One event. It was initially going to be held in 2013. It was going to be held across the water in New Jersey. So the backdrop of the track was actually going to be New York City itself. Millions of dollars were poured into prepping what was going to be a Pretty, pretty cool 5.2 kilometer, 3.2 mile street, hybrid street track for a host of reasons. It didn't happen. Bernie was very upset that his second attempt at getting a race into New York City fell apart. He threatened to sue the race promoters, but realized that would probably burn his relationship with them and never get a race there. So we've been close to having a Grand Prix in New York a couple of times. And by New York, really, I mean New Jersey. So let's say New York City adjacent, but we've been close a couple times before. But I think in this case, Formula One is just probably absolutely being being barraged with cities and states and countries asking to host a Formula One event. The challenge with somewhere like New York City is unlike Miami or unlike Vegas or unlike Baku or some of these other, I would say, 
tourism friendly cities, I think New York would logistically and bureaucratically be a very difficult and expensive place to host a Formula One event. And I think it would be very difficult for the race organizers to break even Mm -hmm. there in the way that they could in Vegas or Miami. So it's cool conceptually. It's cool on paper. Formula One's tried it a couple of times. I just, I don't know if it's realistic at this point. Yeah, I mean, even Matthew kind of downplayed it and didn't really, um, didn't really seem too buoyant on the idea, but who knows? Kind of maybe leave the door open, but I wouldn't expect it to happen anytime soon. Hey, Maffy, we would like to hold a race in the Vancouver suburb of Coquitlam. <laughs> it will be a street track. We are willing to pay up to $5,000 a race. Uh, please uh, please give us a call. Slide into our DMs. You know, that, that, that'd be, that'd slide, be... <laughs> slide into our <laughs> there DMs. Okay, so uh, Baku in Azerbaijan uh, is uh, looking to host one of the sprint races uh, next weekend. And their promoter, uh, Arifa Rahimov, uh, said uh, that they, uh, well, he quite likes the idea of uh, sprint races. They add a lot more action. This is basically what he said and uh, he said it's 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 appealing for them uh but uh, for, for the promoter because it's going to be bringing in a lot more fans on the saturday which i can un- kind of understand for them but you know when when they only have a capacity what was it like eight or ten thousand seats it, it's you know I, I mean, I don't really see that as really being the prime reason to holding a, a sprint race at, uh, you know, at the Baku City Circuit, because it's not like they're packing 100K people in and around that circuit. I mean, there's obviously people that live there, and I'm sure some people probably do, like you see in Monaco, that, uh, you know, people watching out of apartments and, and, and things like that. But I mean, paid attendance as far as people going into the stands is is very, very modest compared to a lot of the other tracks that we see. So... I can understand why they want one, but not for those reasons. Totally. It, maybe it provides a little bit of more exposure from a, a TV perspective. And let's be honest, the race in Baku is purely a marketing exercise for the city, sure. for the country, because you're right. They have one grandstand that I think sits eight to 10,000 people, no general admission. And that is it. To me, if I'm Formula One, I want to make sure that we deliver these events to a, a track that has a significant capacity. And if you throw it at Imola, or if you throw it out of Monza or of a Silverstone, you could tag on an extra 60,000 paying customers over the course of the race weekend. And again, the whole benefit of the sprint race weekends to Formula One is we can charge more to the race organizers and we can charge more to the TV broadcasters. But it's really difficult to justify giving it to Baku when you're going to have eight or 10,000 people in the grandstands on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, no matter what, unless they have a plan to significantly expand capacity, I think there's better places to put a sprint race weekend. And that said, I do enjoy Baku. I think it's a fun Mm -hmm. street circuit, but uh, I think there's better places to put a sprint race. Yeah, and Baku City Circuit was in the news uh, this week for for other uh, reasons, because uh, they are going to redesign and uh, reprofile that uh, pit entry, which has been a bit controversial, especially after last year when we saw Lance and Max have those massive accidents just, uh, you know, right in and around where that pit entry is. And uh, Nico Rosberg, former Formula One driver and former world uh, champion, uh, said, quote, uh, imagine if something broke on the car at that point. You're at 350 kilometers an hour, so just over 200 miles an hour. On the left-hand side, there's uh, only a wall facing you. If something breaks, you find yourself in that wall, and that's the end. It is one of the scariest places I have ever driven an F1 car. Going there is absolutely wrong, end quote. So there there you go. Yeah, Nico, not mincing words there. I mean, that's uh does not paint a very pretty uh, picture for, for that. But, uh, you know, obviously they've uh, heard the criticism, and I'm glad to see that they're taking action on it because, uh, 
yeah, that, that was kind of scary. The moments that we saw the both Lance and Max have uh, last year. Uh, next story, Nick DeFries is going to be thrown into the deep this weekend in FP1 at uh, Barcelona. Uh, he's going to take over from Alex Albon uh, at Williams as uh, part of uh, you know the obligations the team has to give a rookie Formula One driver uh, some time in uh, one of their cars. So that, that that this is kind of an interesting kind of a swap out because DeFries was one of those names that was heavily rumored or expected, I guess you could uh, may, maybe more accurately say, was going to get that uh, seat at Williams for this year because i mean it, it was kind of like an open secret that 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 bottas wasn't going to go to or go back to, to to mercedes for this year or at least that's what everybody expected and that uh, if he was going to leave then george was going to go to mercedes which of course happened and then that would leave a, another seat of williams open and uh, nick defries just seemed like that that natural succession because you know there, there's obviously the tie-in between williams and Mercedes because they have the the the, the Mercedes power unit in it and they just they just felt like they they would parachute one of their own guys in there and of course they made the kind of gutsy move to do their own thing and uh steal away a Red Bull driver because I mean uh, Nick or sorry not Nick uh, but Alex Albon was their uh, reserve driver I guess their simulator driver last year and uh, they they got him in the car instead so it, it, from that bro, point of view bro, bro. yeah yeah yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I was saying bro, 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 but I think this is an interesting topic because as you were talking, my my mind was starting to spin a little bit. You're right that it's it's interesting that this is the guy that was tipped to take the seat that Albon eventually got, and there was a furor, allegedly, reportedly furor out of the Mercedes camp because they didn't take Nick DeVries, who ended up being the Formula E champion last year, who was also the F2 champion in 2019 when Nicholas Latifi finished second. But what's interesting about this is, one, this is a byproduct of the fact that Formula One is now mandating that teams allocate certain free practice sessions over the course of the year to rookies, which is good because we want to see these young drivers getting the opportunity to pilot F1 cars. It's good for everybody. But what's interesting about this is that Williams already has two young drivers on the book. They've got Logan Sargent and they've got Jamie Chadwick. So it's it's interesting that they're tipping a Mercedes driver to take this free practice session when they've got two drivers of their own on the books. I find that find that juicy. I don't know if they're doing it because it's a solid to Mercedes that, hey, look, you know what? We didn't give him the seat, but we're going to give him some, we're going to give him some time in a, in a free practice session or whether it's because they're legitimately auditioning him for a future role and they see him as being a more likely candidate than, uh, than Jamie Chadwick or Logan Sargent. But I thought that was juicy. Well, th- well that's a good point. I mean, I don't think that there's any doubt that uh, getting Alex Albon in that car was, uh, was a bad move. I think it's, it's worked out pretty good for them so far yeah i mean alex is a good driver i mean it just uh, he hasn't had that opportunity to really hit his groove in formula one just yet i mean we, we can go and talk about that uh, you know his whole red bull career almost ad nauseum i mean we, we've been down that road before but he, he's probably one of those guys that was better to make a clean break and move away from that team but we, we've watched uh, this year how nick uh, has really Sorry, Nick uh, Nicholas Latifi, not uh, Nick uh, Nick DeFries. I mean, we're getting kind of an overlap in names here, so I better be specific. But Nicky's been struggling a little bit this year. We just talked about it. I th- was it last week or the week before that? You know, if he doesn't pull it together, that maybe he's going to be the guy that's going to be on the outs at, at Williams. And I mean, there was that story that you found last week that uh, he'd been reportedly 
fired and whoever that reporter was, you walk those comments back on Twitter a couple of hours later saying that, you know, the sources, uh, you know, that the, the intel that he got was not quite accurate and retracted that statement uh, pretty quickly. So how accurate that actually is? I mean, we just don't know based because, you know, we're, we're not privy to those conversations, obviously, but it would be at least gives credence to the fact that we're not the only people in the Formula One world that are thinking, OK, well, you know, h- how long is Nicholas Latifi going to stick with Williams in Formula One when there, there's other good drivers like Nick DeFries out there that that could be a good replacement, right? I apologize profusely because I cannot remember the name of the individual who tweeted this, but somebody had tweeted a few days ago that that misunderstanding about Latifi's imminent departure from Williams was probably related to the fact that it was news was broken or there was a leak that Nick DeVries was going to get the was going to get the drive for free practice one. Ah, okay. And I think somebody probably misunderstood that as replacing Latifi entirely. And that's probably where the messages went a little bit haywire, but, but interesting nonetheless. There you go. Okay, let's take one final break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the race itself. We're going to talk about uh, the teams bringing a lot of updates uh, this week. I mean, Aston Martin has updated their car to look like somebody else's car, which I guess is kind of a page out of their playbook. And then... I'm just kind of being a little bit kind of sarcastic and silly here. But anyways, we'll talk about that. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, well, welcome back to the show. And yes, finally, we do have another race. It's you know, it's kind of funny that we didn't have a race last weekend. I mean, when we get all like, these back-to-back-to-back weekends, uh, after you get like these double and triple headers, I kind of feel like I got to sit down and... You know, take like a big deep breath and say that's a lot of racing that we've seen in the last couple of weeks. But we've had a week off since Miami two weeks ago, but I'm ready to get back to racing this weekend. And Barcelona is an interesting track for a number of reasons. I mean, it's the track where they test. I mean, all these drivers can basically drive around it with their eyes closed and and not miss a single uh, acceleration point. The, they, they'll find their pit box. They'll find the, the pit entry. They know all the braking points. So, I mean, it's a kind of a, a, a known quantity in that regard. But it is interesting because it is one of those places where we typically see the teams bring their upgrades. And if you look at what's happening this weekend... Aston Martin, full upgrade. I mean, they basically upgraded to a Red Bull. Alfa Romeo is a full upgrade. Mercedes has brought a new floor. Uh, Ferrari's brought a new rear wing. McLaren has new uh, brakes. And Alpine has a new rear wing. So why don't we start first with the uh, the, the bit of the controversy between the uh, the, the Red Bull and the, uh, the Aston Martin. So why don't uh, you uh, talk about this one? Because the note that uh, you put, or the you know, what you put into the show, uh, the into the show notes. Pardon me, was the elephant in the rule? The reworked Aston Martin looks like a lot like the the new Red Bull. So why did you take this one away? I think F1 Twitter and F1 Reddit can be a little bit sensitive sometimes <laughs> when it comes to some when it comes to like the similarities between cars and and I've argued for many many years that with time 
engineers and designers will always ultimately come to the same conclusions in terms of how a car should look, especially when it comes to aerodynamics. And it's sometimes more or less just a matter of time that, hey, look, one team gets it right. And when we talk about getting it right, it's the aerodynamic formula of the car. And eventually everyone else through simulations and modeling and wind tunnel time may eventually come to those same conclusions. So it's not surprising that in the next couple of years, a lot of these cars will look more and more similar. And sometimes it's because, hey, they just drew those conclusions doing computational fluid dynamics or because of the wind tunnel or because they were doing physical modeling or because of on-track experiences. These cars are going to start looking more and more alike over the course of the next couple of years. What is staggering about what we saw today is Aston Martin unloaded, built their car and wheeled it out of the garage. And holy moly, does it look an awful lot like the current Red Bull. And I am talking about the side pods. I'm talking about the inlets. I'm talking about the radiators, the louvers running along the sides of the top, the, the uh, side pods, the floor, the etchings in the floor, the texturing of the floor. It looks phenomenally similar. Now, Let's be honest that ultimately these cars are running completely different suspensions and gearboxes and engines, so they can't be the same because they have different aerodynamic requirements based on the weight of the car and some of the other attributes, but in picture, in print, they look remarkably (laughs) similar. And of course, I was scanning through a Reddit thread and I just want to share this and nobody's going to get this unless they grew up in Canada in the 90s or maybe Michigan or they had access to some Canadian TV network. But I saw a comment on Reddit that said it's the red green bull. And then there was a comment (laughs) that was like, if you can't be handsome, at least you can be handy, which is a reference to a really awful mid 90s Canadian kind of variety comedy show. But it is remarkably similar to the Red Bull. And of course, this builds on the negativity that came out in what was it, 2019 or 2020 when we had the pink Mercedes, which is again 2020. Yeah. Right. So it's interesting. And again, I'm very, very eager because Aston Martin has significantly underperformed. They're bringing that full upgrade. So we're talking about a floor. We're talking about aerodynamic surfaces, side pods, inlets, radiators. They've gone for the works. And this is obviously something that's been in works for quite some time. But the other interesting piece about the story and the fact that the two cars look so similar is that the head of aerodynamics at at Red Bull, Dan Fellows, up until June of last year, is is now the technical director with Aston Martin. So he had an uncomfortable departure from Red Bull. So he'd been with Red Bull for the better part of a decade and a half, had seen them through all of their championships. Last year, he was recruited heavily by Lawrence Stroll and Aston Martin. It was announced in June that he was going to depart at a future date. We can therefore extrapolate that he was immediately put under gardening leave Mm -hmm. because, hey, he's under contract with Red Bull. No Formula One team was ever going to allow somebody like him to immediately pick up the reins at a new team the following week. So he would have been put under gardening leave for six, seven, eight months to go into something of a cooling down period, which would disenfranchise and disconnect him from the inner workings at Red Bull. But it's no surprise then that he made the transition to Aston Martin, picked up the reins at Aston Martin about a month and a half ago. I think his first date, his first day on the job was April 2nd. So either this was a package that coincidentally was already in development, or he had a heavy hand in kind of changing their journey in terms of how their car was going to be developed. But yeah, it's very, 
Very interesting how alike these cars are. And if you haven't seen it, jump onto Twitter, jump onto Reddit. It's remarkable how alike these two cars look. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the design arc to get this uh, upgrade package just didn't happen overnight. I mean, I, I can't believe that after like Bahrain, Lauren Stroll like, came stomping into the boardroom at uh, at Silverstone and said, boys, build me a Red Bull and slammed his fist down on the table and walked out. I want it done by Monday. You know, I can't believe that anything would happen. So obviously this has been in 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 progress for, for, for some time. I mean, the one thing that will be interesting, and, and I haven't really looked into it too much tonight, but over the course of the weekend, if you see like the team starting to protest it, that, then you know that they've uh, certainly struck a chord because I remember that's what happened, uh, you know, a couple of years ago with the whole pink Mercedes thing. Because I guess, what, what did they copy? Was it, was it the W10, the Mercedes, I think is what they modeled it after? which obviously was a very, very good car. They copied a lot of those things. But I mean, to me, it's just like, I mean, if you're old enough to remember the Concorde, and if you've kind of gone through the story of the Concorde, the Russians built a, a Tupolev uh, version of it in the 60s, I guess it was, and kind of had the nickname the Concordski. And, you know, it's just, uh, you know, it's just like you can't copy one thing. And I, I think the one thing, that uh, that the the Russians weren't able to do as say the, uh, the 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 British French consortium that designed and built the Concorde was model the wing that very complex uh, Delta wing that the Concorde had and that was something that the Tupolev Design Bureau really struggled with and it's just a, you know and you can infer so much from pictures and and whatever it is but I mean unless you have those technical drawings I mean. You know, you, you you can take inspiration from something, I guess is what I'm trying to say, rather than taking a direct copy from it, because something that is as, as, as complicated as an aircraft or a Formula One, especially the, the aero package on a Formula One car, you, you just can't kind of like take measurements off of a off of a, a picture and uh, expect to get the same the, the same results. I mean, it's just I love yeah. when you talk about the Concorde, by the way, I've I've gone down that rabbit hole a few times recently yeah. because you brought it up on the show where I've been watching all the YouTube videos yeah. about the Concorde ski and Concorde yeah. and wishing that I had the opportunity of to fly on oh, that same, before it was retired. Same. But the the pink Mercedes in a way could almost have been almost have been predicted because it was it was Aston Martin, it was Racing Point emulating the car from the team with whom they had a technical partnership with and with whom they shared a gearbox and a power unit and many of their suspension components. This one's a little bit different because they have no technical partnership. They have no formal partnership with Red Bull at all. And furthermore, they have very different power units, very different suspensions and very different gearboxes in terms of the mm -hmm. weighting and where that mass is allocated. So where it kind of made sense that they would emulate a lot of what made the W W10 successful with the pink Mercedes. In this case, it's very peculiar that they would believe that these aerodynamic surfaces that are successful for Red Bull would be successful for them. So I can't wait for free practice tomorrow because I want to see what type of times they start putting in. The other thing I would mention about this as well is that Every every year, each team is entitled to break curfew a couple of times. So all of the mechanics on all the teams, partly for cost cap reasons, but also partly for protecting the health and well-being of their mechanics, a couple of times a year, they're allowed to break curfew. And it's understood that Mercedes has pulled out one of their break curfew 
my Mercedes Aston Martin has broken out one of their brake curfew cards for this weekend because they're fully intent on applying this full upgrade to both of their cars. So it won't just be Seb, it won't just be Lance, but both mm-hmm. of them are going to roll out tomorrow on Friday with this full upgrade package. Well, you know, I, I guess the, the the two that are going to be really interesting to look at is um, uh, Ferrari's got the new rear wing, right? So, I mean, w- what we've seen over the past uh, couple of races, I mean, that obvious uh, advantage that they had over Red Bull in in the first couple of races of the year, I mean, which was maybe amplified a little bit by due to the fact that Red Bull was struggling with reliability issues as well at the, that that opening phase of the season. But uh, we've we've seen, especially the last couple of races, maybe that Delta's flipped around, that that situation's flipped around to favor Red Bull now a little bit more than it did Ferrari in the first couple of the race, uh, first couple of races of the year. So the Scuderia is obviously going to be hoping that the that the, the the new floor that they're putting on the car and their upgrades are going to do the trick to either close that gap to Red Bull or you know give them that advantage back that they had in in Bahrain in Saudi etc in the the opening races of the year Okay, so uh, let's just uh, where, where where's my notes? Oh yeah, so th- this was kind of cool. Uh, so the one of the other things I thought, if you go to f one dot com, Julian Palmer has uh, an article uh, there, and it says uh, the title of it: Why the Circuit de Barcelona Catalunya is the perfect track for teams to introduce the, the upgrades. Julian, not the greatest Formula One driver, but as a color commentator and an analyst, I think that uh, he does a really really good job and has some uh, very interesting perspective and uh, makes some very insightful comments. So some of the different uh, different uh, uh, points that uh, that he makes why um, uh, Barcelona is a good uh, place to do it. It comes at a good time on the calendar and it's in a convenient location for the teams being based in Europe. Uh, as I mentioned, it's a track that everybody knows. Like I said, I mean, these guys can basically drive around the circuit with their eyes closed and not miss a single breaking uh, point. But one thing that I thought an interesting point that uh, he brought up is that uh, the, the Circuit uh, Catalunya it features what he calls a wide array of corners. So uh, as Julian says, quote, Barcelona is a great test track because it's a relatively short lap, which comprises all sorts of different sections in its 16 corners, while the weather is typically dry. Having a short lap is a benefit with regards to evaluating upgrades because aspects like sneaking out for an install lap or coming back around for a front, front wing adjust doesn't take as much time compared to longer circuits. You can be a little punchier with aggressive run plans because you have time to get a couple more laps in. Between having a very long main straight, a big braking zone at turn one, long radius corners, extremely quick corners, and a twisty circuit-like section at the end, this track is one of the best for evaluating upgrades on the calendar. Catalonia is also a fairly unpunishing circuit, with the barriers harder to hit than many other circuits earlier in the season. With spares being on the light side at this time of year, and particularly with the usually only one upgraded part arriving at the time, it's critical that an over-exuberant driver doesn't break them, end quote. So I think that's a really uh, an interesting uh, bit of uh, you know commentary for, from, from, uh, from Jolie. And I mean, certainly it does have some very interesting uh, corners on it. Uh, I mean, there, there are some very long sweeping corners, like you get going from uh, turn two to turn three, then a short run up to turn four, which is where Nico and uh, Lewis came to grief back in 2016. And then it tightens up uh, between uh, four, five, six, seven, and eight. And then you get that run down from the straight between uh, turns nine and 10 and that twisty set of corners from turns 10 to 16, which uh, brings you back around to the pit entrance and then back down to to start finish. I mean, I guess one of the criticisms is that, you know, that uh, this track doesn't often see a lot of overtaking. So 
Again, it will be a bit of an interesting test, or maybe not a test, but uh, another example to see how the new cars perform on a track like this. And then uh, again, like we saw last year, the, the the circuit has been reprofiled at turn ten. They've uh, they've actually reset it to its original configuration. I mean, in previous years, they'd actually pulled it back and brought it more straight across to go from turn ten to eleven. Uh, but now with with the um, they've they've kind of put the the like the the, the roundness back the corner the bulb into that corner from uh, uh, 10 to 11 which i think makes it a little bit racier than uh 10 to 11 is uh sorry 10 to 12 is like it always was but uh yeah it's an interesting track so I- i'm looking forward to the uh to-, to the race but certainly some very interesting uh insight from julian palmer yeah i thought that was a great article as well and i wasn't necessarily the biggest fan of julian when he stepped out of the Renault garage and into the sky tv commentary box but he's certainly grown on me and yeah, i enjoy my sure. checkered flag yeah. i love i love the work that he does but i have a question for sure. you so for everybody sitting at home spain is absolutely obsessed with MotoGP and motorcycle racing. Every family, they invest a ton of money. They get their sons, they get their daughter onto the bike as soon as they can. And they get them starting to do those figure eights in the parking lot and getting them onto the track. So whereas in the UK, everyone's getting their kids in the karting. In Spain, it's all about motorcycle racing and MotoGP. And if you look at great great riders like Mark Marquez is not surprisingly from Spain. And we talk a lot about the fact that Italy, great Great Formula One country, hosts two races. The United States is now going to host three Formula One races. In MotoGP, Spain hosts four races. It hosts one F1 race. It almost lost it a couple of years ago. It kept getting a one-year reprieve, mm-hmm. a one-year reprieve. We're now a decade and a half removed from, <laughs> of course, Spanish driver Fernando Alonso's, Alonso's back-to-back championships. You were there in 2014. Yep. Talk a little bit about the atmosphere. Talk a little bit about the placement of the track from the city. How do you get there? Maybe just share your experiences because I think people at home would be really interested to know what it would be like to go to a Spanish Grand Prix. Yeah, so it's not actually in uh, Barcelona. Barcelona itself. It's probably about forty minutes, I would say, to the the, the northeast of the, the the city. But it was really easy for us uh, to get to. I mean, you can get there by bus. You can drive. We actually had booked tickets on, on a shuttle bus, which was kind of an interesting kind of exercise because we booked them months in advance uh, because we bought the tickets, and then we were trying to look at different options to get to the track itself. So we just bought uh, the, these uh, tickets for a shuttle bus for a certain place at a certain time, and we just uh, we, we took the, the the subway, and then we had to. Walk walk a couple of blocks we had no idea what we were getting into but we got there they had a whole lineup of these uh, these big coaches these big buses and they basically dropped us off not quite at the front gate because it's actually there's a big um, you you go along the freeway or the motorway i guess is you call it in european terms um, that goes um, that runs northeast uh, out of uh, Barcelona, I guess, uh, up towards the French border, and then where you get to the you know uh, Montmelo, there's a big industrial area, and you kind of go up, and it's it's obviously on a hill there. But the bus, the the shuttle bus, would drop you off as close to the front gate as you could get as, as possible. So you maybe had like a five or a ten minute walk, and it was not strenuous as, uh, at all. You're kind of walking through like the, the 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 industrial area, the access roads, and stuff like that. And this this is 
light industry. It's not like these big nasty factories belching like choking smoke and noxious fumes or things like that. And 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 for us, it was quite convenient because we were sitting, like I said a little bit earlier, across the uh, from from the pit lane exit. So when we got there, we were basically right where we were, where we wanted to be. And we, the, the the seats that we chose were strategic. I mean, when you come through the front gates, you see the big grandstand, which is I wouldn't say iconic, but it, it's it's very recognizable whenever you see pictures of um, of uh, Barcelona at the Grand Prix there and you walk right in and then you know there's just a couple more minutes uh, down the uh, walking down but I guess if you're sitting in one of the other stands or maybe one of the GA areas I mean you've got to do a little bit more walking so just uh, be uh, prepared uh, for, for that because I mean yeah, that, that's one thing to remember is yeah, that it's really cool that these cars can lap a Formula One circuit in a, in, a, in a minute and a half or a minute 20 seconds or whatever it might be. But just remember, they're going, you know, much, much faster than you and I are <laughs> by our on our own means. So, you know, unless there is I, I, I've never seen it any other circuits. I mean, once you get there, I mean, it's it's up to you, because when we went to when I, when I went to my very first race at the Nürburgring, we uh, we we. Uh, parked our car near the circuit entrance and we were sitting at the at the hairpin which was about as far as you could get from where we parked to where we were sitting and that was a long long walk and it was a very very hot day on uh, on sunday afternoon and that was quite the hike back when we were had been sitting there in the baking sun all day but uh, it's it, it's fairly easy to access there was plenty of amenities there around there's a lot of green space around the track itself there was a lot of families that brought picnics and it was just a really cool vibe I mean, just to, to, to sort of sit there and just chill out and not just uh, take in all the events and all the things that were going on. It was just it was really cool to see the family vibe and people just uh, enjoying the day out uh, with, with family or friends or, or whatever it might be. And of course, like uh, any other, uh, I, I would ex- uh, expect with like a lot of, uh, you know, especially races in Europe where it's fairly easy and convenient for, for, for people to get around because, I mean, you can hop on a plane and within an hour or so, I mean, you can be a number of countries uh, away from where you started, uh, you know, there was quite a, you know, quite a, a very, you know, cosmo, uh, cosmopolitan uh, feel to it. And then finally, the city of Barcelona itself is a fantastic, fantastic city. I mean, it's the home of Gaudi. It's just a city of culture and just wonderful things to see and to do. And, you know, lots of places you can go for a wonderful meal and a glass of wine. And, you know, it's just uh, we stayed there for an extra long time just to, to, to soak up everything to do in the city itself. And I was actually just going back and looking at some pictures uh, that this uh, this afternoon and just uh, kind of, uh, you know, enjoying the nostalgia. And, and, you know, just in general, I mean, it, it's a city I'd love to go back for. And obviously, I would try and couple that in with the the, the, the race itself. But uh, certainly, definitely a good place to go. But uh, let, let's just, uh, before we wrap it up here, because I see we're kind of getting to our usual time, usual length for our show couple of quick stats on the on the on the track itself it's a race distance of a 308.42 kilometers 66 laps circuit length is 4.68 kilometers lap record was set by max verstappen last year was a 118.149 and the tires that pirelli are bringing this weekend are the the hardest in their compounds the c1s the c2s and the c3 softs and let's just look at some other stats the most winningest drive Drivers at 
Barcelona's Michael Schumacher and Lewis Hamilton, who have won it six times apiece. A whole bunch of other drivers, including Jackie Stewart, Nigel Mansell, Alan Prost, and Mika Hakkinen have won it three times apiece. And then uh, some very recognizable names have won it a couple of times, including Emerson Fittipaldi, Mario Andretti, Ayrton Senna, Kimi Raikkonen, and Fernando Alonso. Ferrari have, I wouldn't say have they a lock on, in a, on on the Spanish Grand Prix. They've won it more than anyone else with 12 wins, but Mercedes have nine, and McLaren have, and Williams have eight wins there each. Williams, it's been 10 years since their last uh, race win. And their last win came via Pastor or Crashtor Maldonado. If you've been around Formula One you'll, for a while, you'll get that reference. And he won that race for Williams back in 2012. So there you go. Anything further to add, my friend? No, I think that was I think that was great, my friend. I think we can wrap this up. I don't want to make any predictions oh, about man, this I race weekend because the, uh, I, I wasn't going to let you off easy. I was going to put you on the spot, but I can see you're trying to weasel your way out of this one. Yeah, and maybe I'm extract. desperately trying to wrap up this <laughs> podcast. I'm turning off the lights, closing the blinds, shutting this down. I, I think it's my fear is it's going to be another. Red Bull Ferrari dominated race and I feel like the championship I know it's early might be getting away from us a little bit I really enjoyed Bahrain I loved Jetta this year Jetta was a a real surprise for me I didn't particularly enjoy the three races that followed Um, Miami I get it the race weekend was a spectacle it was really cool i love that we took uh took f1 in a different direction i didn't think the racing was was particularly great and i don't i'm becoming deeply unsettled and uncomfortable with the spread between ferrari red bull and the rest of the field so i'm desperately hoping that the upgrades that mercedes the significant upgrades that mercedes brought and maybe that aston martin brought will kind of mix up the middle of the pack a little bit and it would make uh mistakes made by Ferrari and Red Bull that much more regrettable because you might have some more competitive cars on the track. So I think if I have any prediction, it's that we can probably expect to see some combination of Red Bulls and Ferraris on the podium this weekend. I hope that's not necessarily the case because I want to see some more competitive parity this year. And I get that this is still a transition transitionary year and teams are still figuring it out, but I haven't loved what I've seen the last three races. Yeah, okay. I, I'm going to be bold then, if uh, if anything else. Uh, so you can take this to the bank or you can uh, blame me for blowing your your betting money this weekend, whatever it is. I'm, 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 I'm going to try and be bold here. So I'm going to say Carlos Sainz is going to win Max second, Charles third, Checo fourth. And then I'm going to say fifth will be Lando ahead of the, the two Mercedes drivers. But I think Lewis finishes ahead of... Um, of uh, of George Russell this week. And I think Lewis is due to have a bit of a bounce back race, but I don't know if uh, he can bounce high enough to get uh, to to overtake one of the uh the uh or one or two of the Red Bulls or the Ferraris, but I think Lando sneaks in there. I think we we're, we're, we're due to see a little bit of magic from from Lando Norris. I think He's uh he he's due to surprise us so who knows we'll see ooh I've got I've got <clears> one <throat> more thing I want to sneak in under the wire okay, so go for a it. couple of weeks ago we shared a comment from Otmar Otmar Snafnauer yep did I say that no, right no you did, did not I, after oh please you go <laughs> try it. how do you say it properly Otmar Snafnauer opt opt oh my gosh can you tell it's almost midnight <laughs> our time opt opt bar 
Otmar, a couple of weeks ago, had made a comment that one of the reasons for his departure from, and he's being quite open and candid about this, one of the reasons for his departure from Aston Martin was that there were two popes and a good organization can't have two popes. And we and a lot of people had assumed that the two popes were he and Lawrence Stroll. And we'd read into the situation that maybe Lawrence was starting to be too involved in the decision making and the tactical decisions around the creation of the actual car and a lot of the decisions being being made on the shop floor in the factory. Yep. He has now clarified that that is not the case, that Lord Stroll was not the other Pope. In fact, drumroll, it was somebody else. And I'm going to read a quote here from Otmar. People ask me who that Pope was. Well, you know, it wasn't Lawrence because everyone has a boss. I have one here at Alpine as well, and that's in place everywhere. But once they brought in dot, 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 my enemy... Well, he didn't say that, but he says, and I quote, but once they brought in Martin Whitmarsh, that's the other Pope that I was talking about. For both of us to sit in the same space and try to do the same thing just doesn't really work. But it wasn't about Lawrence. Lawrence is still the owner and the boss over there. I have a boss here. And that's all understood and clear. And that's how it should be. Hmm. So the reason then, the reason that Otmar left Aston Martin was because they hired Martin Whitmarsh. So we can put that in the books, put it to bed. Martin Whitmarsh strikes again and ruins another Formula One team. <laughs> I feel kind of vindicated because this kind of really validates some of the, uh, you know, the 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 offline conversations that uh, that you and I had uh, in and around that uh, time when when that news totally, broke. Totally. When, when, when Otmar Safnauer, I'll say that nice and slow. Otmar o- Safnauer. Otmar. <laughs> oh, what is wrong with me today? It's all good. Otmar. This is the the the, the free comedy moment uh, that that the community's been uh, been waiting for. So <laughs> you guys Mark, are wrong. nobody's listening at an hour. <laughs> 34 of the podcast you'd be surprised we're, we're in the clear surprised. all good all right guys well we're, we're gonna park it there thank you so much uh, for uh joining in on the live stream tonight thank you for listening to the podcast be sure to check us out on sunday night we'll be back to to recap all the action that happens on the the, the track at barcelona plus whatever happens with mr otmar safnauer geez i almost said it wrong too but uh, there you go anyways if you want to get in touch send us an email at scootery f1 pod uh on twitter or email us at scootery f1 pod at gmail.com that's it that's a wrap enjoy the weekend catch you guys on sunday night bye for now